All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. And welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, the talky and touchy feely version of my book, Photo Work 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. I'm Sasha Wolf, joined as usual by my friend and producer, the man who miraculously keeps me under one hour. <laughs> <laughs> snip, snip, cut, cut. Um, <laughs> An editor's Michael. life for me. <laughs> Uh, that's Michael Chauvin Dalton giggling back there, everyone. Hi, Michael. Hello. Thank you for all your hard work on today's episode because it was a longy before you uh, <laughs> before you got involved. A uh, longy but goody, and we'll get to that. Yes. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll get right to it because we don't have a ton of time, but today's mm -hmm. episode is a conversation I had with the great photographer, Catherine Opie. And I just, I do want to say that you managed to cut out mostly me just blabbering <laughs> on. So people, should, people shouldn't be worried that you cut out anything really interesting that Kathy was saying, because... Uh, if I sacrificed anything, it was your wisdom. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On topics far and wide. Uh, so what happened was I just felt like what I really wanted to do, like five, ten minutes into talking to Kathy... I felt as though I wanted to crawl through the phone line and, mm -hmm. and just end up wherever she was hanging out with her because she is so unbelievably warm. Mm -hmm. And I loved talking to her so much that I talked a lot. And so you cut out my ridiculous digressions. But they weren't ridiculous. You know, maybe someday if we ever do outtakes. Uh, though, you know, we'll play some of those. Sasha's life philosophies. That's usually <laughs> what they are, right? It's... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Where the world is heading and uh, exactly. exactly how it should change. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Um, oh, boy. But so, yeah, so Kathy, um, who I really didn't know, Turns out to just be one of the nicest, kindest, I guess nicest and kindest are sort of the same thing. Um, <laughs> just so warm and sort Absolutely. of so humble and egoless. And um, that that comes through so clearly. I think this might be one of my favorite episodes that you've done. Yeah, she was a joy. Just the ability to to accept, you know, with grace what you've accomplished and, and move on. It's so, yep. it's really wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And I mean, I was really struck by. I mean, she's just so naturally curious about the world and interested in sort of exploring it visually without, you know, tons of sort of preconceived notions or an agenda. She's just out there making pictures. She goes where her curiosity takes her. Mm -hmm. But yeah, her just you know, sort of compassion for the world as she meets it is really incredible and and, and in the work um, and in her. And, and that's what I, I really realized talking to her. 
Absolutely. And you have a a kind of wonderful bookended conversation about the very sort of not I guess the beginning where Catherine Opie really gets noticed in the Whitney biennial. And mm-hmm. and then you get into where Catherine is heading in this sort of next chapter idea, which, you know, when you think of someone who's such a been a force in photography and still so very active in photography, in, in, in fact, with this incredible book that's out right now, you don't think of that person as even mentioning the idea of slowing down or what they're going to do next. And of course, <laughs> Catherine's idea of slowing down is you know, everyone else's idea of speeding up. But yeah, <laughs> but it's it's just a just a wonderful conversation. Uh, you mentioned the book, and I want to really plug this book. So so Kathy has sort of a big survey book uh, that just came out that Fiden published. It's just called Catherine Opie. And it is it is so great. I want to acknowledge that it's it's going to be a reach for some people. I think it's $150 on Fiden's website. You can get it for Find less, it for less. <laughs> uh, other places. Shop around. Yeah. Shop around. But <laughs> I I think it's worth it. Again, I don't want to be in any way cavalier about the expense, but um, obviously I got it in, in sort of preparation for this talk. I would have gotten it anyway, but I really love it. I spent a lot of time with it. I'm s- still spending time with it. And there's over 300 pictures. Sometimes books like this I find really overwhelming. There's a lot of text Mm -hmm. in it, I think, by four different contributors. But it is so beautifully designed and put together. There's something about it that's just so organic that just feels really right. And I have enjoyed it so much. There's also there's a wonderful interview in it that she does with Charlotte Cotton that I really recommend to people. And I mean, you sort of realize straight away in that interview how how warm and lovely Kathy is as a person. But anyway, so if folks can manage it, I really recommend getting this uh, book. So and it's it's the first survey of her work mm-hmm. like this. Um, yep. And so yeah, it's it's if you are a, a collector, if you're a fan, it's you know if you can figure out how to do it. And and I include myself in that as well. I'm. Yeah. I'm waiting to, you know, for my wife to hear she has a job and then <laughs> yeah, I will, yeah, yeah. I will get it. Yep. Well, all right. So because we're going to hit that hour mark uh, without further ado, Michael, if you don't mind, please take it away. My pleasure. And here is your conversation with Catherine Opie. Catherine Opie, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast. Thanks for, you know, doing this with me. Absolutely. You know, I start every episode by just asking my guests to give a rundown of their life story. <laughs> so, <laughs> so take it away, Kathy. Okay, my life story. Well, it starts in Sandusky, Ohio, uh, where, I, where I was born and uh, lived until I was 13 years old. And then I moved out here to the West Coast to Poway, California. So from Sandusky, Ohio to Poway, California. And during that time, I was photographing. I started, I picked up a camera when I was nine. And that's definitely represented in the Fiden book, my first nine-year-old portrait. Got a camera for my birthday. And, you know, was always like kind of interested in spaces and trying to describe spaces and even through high school, I predominantly made friends 
because I carried around a camera and I would go home and print the pictures of the high school play and go back the next day and either sell them or give them away to make friends. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, uh, you know, the camera, yeah, the camera, the camera was a, a way for me, I feel to be more comfortable, not only trying to make friends, but also examine the world that, um, that we all live in. And from, Sandusky. Does Sandusky have that huge amusement park? It does. It is known for Cedar Point Amusement okay. Park. And yeah, that's Cedar why, Point. And that's why okay. people know Sandusky otherwise. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, yeah. Also, the mention there. in Tommy Boy. I think in Tommy Boy, that film, they end up in Sandusky, Ohio. So there's always okay. these different funny references to Sandusky. <laughs> but for me, it was, you know, the town that my dad grew up in. Same nurse who brought him into the world brought me into the world. I had the same bus driver God, as he had so for me it was like you know a a, a small big town right on yeah. lake erie yeah it's quite beautiful yeah i really love the lake i mean that's partly why i made that big piece for the cleveland clinic as well mm-hmm. and some of those images are in the fighting book and yeah they're the you know bodies of water are very special but lake erie growing up was kind of crazy because i was born in 61 and you know, it was when the Cayuga River was on fire and there was just an enormous amount of, of concern about the pollution of the Great Lakes. And so we would have to bury our fish on a beach day. Like we'd go to the beach with a shovel and pick up all the dead fish and bury hey. them to enjoy the, the, the lake shore. And it was funny because I didn't really equate it to pollution at that point. I would just say, Mom, why are all the fish dead? And she's like, they die of old age. And I'm like, okay. Oh, my God. God. Mom. Good Lord. So from Sandusky, your family moved to California. And then you eventually wound up uh, at at an art school. But you took a circuitous route I think yeah I did I you know after graduating from high school my brother had joined the military he's a year older Mm -hmm. than I and he had joined the air force and I think there was a thought for a moment with me it's like well should I join the uh, military to get training to be a photographer you know because I knew that that was Mm. a possibility that I could actually get training to be a kind of commercial military photographer And then I kind of thought about the military and said, no, I don't really think that I would do that well in the military. I wasn't out or anything at that point, but I also just had this inkling that maybe I wouldn't like the training. (laughs) Maybe Mm -hmm. I wouldn't like being a a soldier, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And so I... Too much of a peacenik. So I had always been a camp counselor and I kind of remained a camp counselor after high school and I taught sixth grade outdoor education and I taught riparian and forestry up in the mountains in Forest Falls, California, which is above Redlands. And then my first, uh, then came back and worked another year at a camera store and then realized that I needed to get it together. So the first college I went to was actually an all girls college primarily they had just opened it up to allow men to apply and the college doesn't exist anymore but um, it was in Bristol Virginia and the main majors were horsemanship and ballet and I was (laughs) studying I know (laughs) that is unbelievable it was was like an interesting thing 
And I was studying early childhood education. I was going to be a kindergarten teacher. And happy with the idea of being a kindergarten teacher because I really love yeah. kids. And um, my dad was dating an artist who actually was his ex-girlfriend from high school at the time. They had gotten uh, back together after my parents divorced. And she was a painter in New York, a longtime New York painter. And Eleanor Schnur. And uh, Eleanor, I went to visit her and we went out and I was photographing Wall Street and hanging out because that's how she would make her work as she would often work off of photographs. And she just looked at me and she goes, you know, you're not going to be a very good kindergarten teacher. You're going to you're a better artist. And I was just like, well, you know, yeah, that's that that isn't going to work out for me. Like being an artist. I mean, can you do that? And she's like, well, I've done it my whole life. And I'm just like, yeah, but I don't I don't think, you know, my parents are going to want me to do that. And uh, she said, well, I'm just saying to you, you should leave Virginia, go to a major city, go to an art school, study art. And and that's what you should be doing. And so I did that. I went and I called my mom on the payphone from my dorm room uh, hallway at, in Virginia and said, Mom, Eleanor said I should go to art school. And she said, oh, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to apply to San Francisco Art Institute. And she said, well, I can pay your tuition. You're going to have to figure everything else out. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. And then I got in and sure enough, I figured everything out. I worked at a residence club from three to eight in the morning for my room and board and then had a job at the YMCA afterwards because I had worked for the Y for so many years being a camp counselor. And um, just started making images and studying with really amazing teachers that I'm so grateful that I actually made that change in my life. Yeah, you had pretty unbelievable group of professors through undergrad and, and grad school. Um, can you sort of rattle off some of those names? Yeah, no, I got to study with uh, Larry Salton and John Collier Jr. when John was wearing hearing aids and turning them down in class when, when people <laughs> didn't want to hear it, when he didn't want to hear what people's comments were about his criticism. And um, But he was amazing because his dad was an anthropologist and he was one of the early people to connote the term visual anthropology. And uh, Perkle Jones was my large format teacher. And he was phenomenal because he used to print for Ansel Adams. So mm -hmm. I really learned an incredible amount of darkroom technique and chemistry mm -hmm. mixing from him that I just still value to this day and learned large format and, you know, pretty much switched to shooting primarily four by five all the way through grad school. And then I had, you know, I had this amazing, like, women's, trot the women through kind of uh, summer class that Connie Hatch led. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Carrie Mae Weems came through that and just an enormous amount of really amazing women photographers that I was like, oh, okay, maybe this is a possibility. Mm -hmm. And then I uh, waited a year and I worked at Rainbow Grocery, a collective with all these amazing lesbians doing produce display and stocking the produce. And that was a pretty great <laughs> job, actually. I got to be really good at a 400 pound symmetrical carrot wheel that I was always very proud of. <laughs> and so I had one more year in San Francisco before going off to Cal Arts for grad school where I 
studied with Millie Wilson and Connie Hatch again and Catherine Lord and Christoph Wadishko and Alan Sakula, Joanne Callis, Judy Fiskin, Gay Block. They were all really uh, phenomenal teachers as well. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. That's really an incredible yeah, lineup. No, and I think that that kind of is the inspiration to teach. I've taught now for 30 years. And yep. part of it is that I had amazing teachers who invested a lot of hope and energy and, you know, uh, time with me. And I kind of believe in that community building that, yeah, you give back. And part of teaching is that. And happy to have been doing that service for as long as I have. And you had Eleanor. It's really interesting because, you know, it sounds like she played a sort of fast and quick but incredibly pivotal role. And, you know, I, I read about Eleanor when I was, you know, reading up on you and reading through the, your new Amazing Fiden book. And I thought, God, it's just so crazy how one person can just change the trajectory of our lives so dramatically. Yeah, it was. It was one person, Eleanor. And I would think that that would stay with you also, knowing that you can, you know, if you have a student who maybe, you know, lack confidence or be on the edge, that you know from your own experience that just relating to that person in the right way, even briefly, can that sort of encouragement can just be so powerful. Oh, yeah. It doesn't incredible. have to be like yeah. teachers who are there for you for a long time, but even just someone like your dad's girlfriend who sort of made you see see things differently and, and, and provided you with a sort of different outlook. It's just really amazing. Yeah, and actually, if you go to the, in the Fiden book, one of the first photographs you come on is last day in New York in 1985. And that was also a trip where I was visiting Eleanor and uh, and we would go out and we would photograph together. So I had been just wandering around on a cold winter day in New York with my overcoat, and my fedora. And that was always kind of my favorite outfit because I, I, I don't know, being a street photographer, for some reason, I thought if I wore that, I was invisible. Don't ask me why I thought I was invisible. <laughs> But for some reason, I thought it had magical powers of invisibility uh, and I could like get amazing street photographs just by wearing this one outfit, you know. But yeah, no, it like is. Like Harry Potter's yeah. uh, invisibility cloak. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Before Harry Potter. <laughs> BHP. That's awesome. <laughs> that is just... That's great. But no, I'm still in touch with Eleanor. She's still living and still painting in New York. And she's uh, always been a, this constant person in my life, which is lovely. Yeah. I was also sort of made a note to ask you about something else that just is, tends to preoccupy me. So I'm going to drag you into this. Okay. Um, but <laughs> drag me in. Your mom took it a lot of home movies and family photos. Yes, a lot. She was really the documentarian of the family. And so Yeah, they're beautiful. Is, I wonder is do you think that being a photographer I just wonder how much you think being a photographer comes from just that. Mm -hmm. And whether you think of it in terms of sort of nature or nurture because I know you know my biological father made television commercials mm -hmm. and 
I studied filmmaking and, you know, and photography and there's just, I don't know that, I mean, I think there's a good chance I would not have gone down this path if my father hadn't done what he did and given me a camera and been around, you know, it just, I just sort of fascinated by this sort of way in which when we're very little, these things that our parents are doing around us just imprints on us so intensely. Yeah, I think that I, I think it was, there was a number of things around me. There was a a uh, kind of a guy in Sandusky, Ohio, by the name of Tom uh, Capri. And he was like, always had his camera. And I had been in his dark room when I was a kid. And my grandfather had a dark room. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he had cameras. And my uncle's, uh, Uncle John is a really amazing painter as well. And my and his wife, my Aunt Sue, is an incredible sculptor. Oh, you're surrounded. John by and Susan okay. Opie. Yeah. And, and my parents owned a craft company. We owned Opie Craft. Right. So I'm around original art. I'm around, you know, knowing family artists. And I'm around people who are using cameras in a more sophisticated and interesting way. And my mm-hmm. grandfather would take these amazing trips. You know, in the 60s, he would go uh, to Africa and take these, like, very specific trips of of visiting you know it was it was it could be it could be thought of as national geographic now but he would go and visit tribes and make images Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. he came home with a lot of a lot of mass and ivory and that kind of thing and Mm -hmm. but we he'd set up the slide projector and we would have sunday family dinner and then we would watch the slideshows of his recent travels and mm-hmm. so there was there was this photography going on around me that I appreciated and I was I think I was watching it. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to have a camera and take my own pictures. Yep. So when you get out of or when you're sort of finishing up graduate school, are you feeling confident at this point in your abilities and feeling like you know which direction you're pointing in or you know what's your state of mind because i know it's, kind, it can be very kind very... of not really i mean it's 1988 so yeah. the big thing that was happening in in photography wasn't what i was doing i mean it was right. the picture generation right i'm yeah. not out of the picture generation i'm you know more a more traditional kind of coming out of the modernist sensibility of the medium and, you know, definitely trained out of Zarkowski school, so to speak. And so I didn't think about um, how I was going to do this. I know that it's what I did, but I didn't have a plan beyond let's go ahead and try to figure out how to get a teaching job. And that right. was the predominant reason why I got my master's degree. And so I continue, you know, I've always made work and I just continued to make work. And I think that after CalArts in, in 1990, 89, 90, I buy all my friends' mustaches and have them come to my living room in Silver Lake and where I put up a the same colored yellow seamless and I make being and having with a 4x5 camera. And the response to that body of work, including it being included in art form in an article that Judith Butler wrote, was all of a sudden a different kind of entry. And Mm -hmm. then I started making the more formal uh, portraits. But before that, I was still doing work on cities. Because Mm -hmm. before that body of work of being and having, 
I had graduated from CalArts and after doing the master plan, I was working on the the subway being built through MacArthur Park in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and its relationship to gentrification. And so when I went all of a sudden for the first time into the studio to do being and having in the early portraits, and then people were looking at that work, then I was like, oh, well, how do I negotiate this? Because I'm just trying to get a teaching job. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, it, it took a while for me to figure out that that I was making a, a career for myself, actually. Right. And yeah. I would say that it was after the 95 Whitney Biennial that I realized that, oh, I'm I'm being kind of looked at now. Like, people right. are knowing who I am, and I'm becoming an international artist. And maybe I should, you know, and at this point in time, I was the lab tech down at UC Irvine, and I had designed and built all their dark rooms and was managing the facility and realized that different students were coming there to to potentially study with me, but I wasn't teaching. I was I was in charge of the entire facility and realizing that I I needed to just go and start teaching adjunct and leave a full time job so that I could get into that portion of my plans in life, so to speak. Do you want to just tell people who are listening who may not have this at their fingertips what happened at the Whitney Biennial, why that launched your career? Well, in 1995, Biennial was the first museum, major museum exhibition I was ever put in. And I had just finished the body of work of portraits on the bright colored seamless of my friends. But I also had made in 1994 a... um, a pretty daring self-portrait called pervert. Mm -hmm. And so that was actually the first time that pervert had ever been exhibited. It had never even been in a gallery before that. And so the Whitney wanted new work. And so it was all new work of uh, 16 by 20s, the 30 by 60 more performative portraits of my friends and then pervert. And I was right across from Nicole Eisenman and, you know, mm-hmm. and then right down from me was Matthew Barney. Then right down over on the same floor was Nan Golden. And it was uh, pretty surreal. My dad came. I had to go home and show them pervert. Uh, yeah. My parents were divorced. So I showed my dad first and said, I just need to let you know that this is going to show in the Whitney Museum of American art. And I, I, I know that you know that I'm a lesbian, but there's some other parts of my life that you don't really know much about. So I had to have a second coming out. Yep. And that was, uh, my dad was fine with it. My mom was like, Oh, wow. Um, my stepmother was horrified and wanted to uh, basically make sure that I never saw my niece again because she thought I was disturbed. And uh, my brother fortunately didn't allow that. And to this day, she's also in the book. Um, Kayla has Owen on her lap looking up at the light and she's pregnant. Um, and And she's like my daughter, Kayla. So, you know, I had all this kind of, all of a sudden I had, uh, homophobia enter my life in relationship to my own family again. But then I had this public 
immediate opinion uh, that was casted around me in which yep. in which people would be intimidated by me because I was <laughs> I saw that show. <laughs> I was there. It scared the shit out of me. So I have to ask you, why did it scare the shit out of you? I think it still scares me, by the way, because I, there's a part of me, and this is not going to become about me, but there is definitely, I think I probably speak for, I'm not unique. Um, I, I think there's a part of me that is sort of associates that look, that sort of quintessential s m look with something dark. Yeah. No, I think a lot of people and, do. Yeah. And it scared me. And the whole, and Matthew Barney scared me, by the way. <laughs> and like, and I think, you know, so obviously I needed to grow up a bit. Yeah. I, I mean, look, that show had just a huge effect on me. And not the least of which is, to, to really make you think about why am I reacting this yeah. way? Why do I feel this way? And that's so important. I mean, all of a sudden you're, you're having some sort of self therapy session with yourself and it's, these things are important, but well, um, yeah, yeah, internal yeah. homophobia is like a really difficult thing, you know, and I don't oh, think definitely. it's articulated yep. very much. And, and it, it, that was kind of my articulation of it in relationship to how I viewed my own community, um, mm -hmm. kind of cast away the leather community again in relationship to the March on Washington. And so it was really surprising that in my own community that I would be called a pervert more so than, you know, I knew that already existed in terms of dyke and pervert and those kinds mm -hmm. of that language being cast upon me outside of my own community. But when all of a sudden that came up as this kind of binary of normal or abnormal from my mm -hmm. own queer community, I was like, wait a second here. And uh, so just decided to be fairly bold in making that portrait. Were you terrified or? No, I was more, I, I ter so I was more terrified of what people thought of me afterwards than I was in making it. Like I mm -hmm. made it in San Francisco in a studio. I was surrounded by friends. Right, um, of course. You know, I had my best friend, Idexa, holding my hand the whole time, who had just become my best friend the year before. I, you know, I had Raylan Galena, who was an amazing, amazing body, oh, who did a lot of stuff with Fakir Musafar, part of that whole community did the cutting because I wanted the cutting to be really, really perfect. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then I had, um, my two friends, Melissa, uh, do the needlework. So, mm -hmm. um, Joe, Joey and Melissa did the needlework and they were both professional piercers at body M. So I mm -hmm. wasn't terrified in doing that. And I did it in this way that it was so, what a beautiful day in the studio or evening in the studio right, of people yeah. gathering. But what happened when it went out into the world and people kind of placing a different identity on me was what was surprising that people would automatically say, wow, I was so scared to talk to you, but you're so nice. 
And Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, those ideas around how personality is formed in relationship to one's art practice, I didn't have any expectation of, nor did I think of it. And I think that's why I switched right away to the freeways, to be honest. Just to take take yourself out of that space for a while. Yeah, it was it was intense. It was all I didn't want to be the poster child of the SM leather community from a leather dyke mm-hmm. perspective. I was just mm-hmm. making work that was really important and crucial to me and very political in terms of losing friends from AIDS. I mean, my community was decimated and blood was part of the substance of fear. And so I mm-hmm. wanted to just really use blood as a substance, but it wasn't supposed to be fearful. But I think that when you make work within a community that is so used to that expressing the body in that way, that you, in a, in a weird way, forget how it would be, resp- it's responded on a public level. Well, also your work being and having and work you'd made before that there was a certain amount of humor and and tenderness real warmth and yeah. playfulness exactly yeah it was tender and, <laughs> yeah Perverts so i do tender. think that but it's really interesting cuz i think in a way it's like so that was startling but then you know now we have all this other work from you since pervert and it's sort of like oh yeah right that kathy's really yummy and sweet and mushy You're right, right. And full of soul and love <laughs> and so you know now you <laughs> now you've sort of bracketed pervert with you know that mushier side of you but I think you know it was sort of startling going from that very playful tenders as you say work to like this defiant angry um, you can say it it was yeah, an angry, angry piece yeah it's an angry mm-hmm. piece it really is I mean it's formally really complicated but it came the making of it came out of a place of anger that's for sure i will say that when i look at it you know over the years as i've become more comfortable with it one of the things that has has made me more comfortable is actually knowing that of course you're surrounded by people because it could not have you know you couldn't have done all the needlework by yourself i mean there's like and it's so funny just just knowing that for me, for whatever reason, just really softens everything. I don't know. It's really, you know, I start filling in what's going on around you yeah. in my head. And, well, I have it um, on film if you ever want to see it. Oh, I would. Are you kidding? Yeah, no. It's, it's, it, I would love it's to see documented. It. It's really beautiful, actually. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there's this one moment that Raylan starts, you know, she has already started the cutting on me. And and then she sees a pimple on my uh, like above my boob, and she starts fussing with it and saying like I'm gonna get this, you know, because I'm like I, it's been there forever, it won't pop, and she's like I'm gonna get it, and and we're laughing and stuff, and it's just like this really tender moment, but then after that, when she goes back into the cutting, yeah. I've lost my my sense of concentration, and so the dealing with the pain at that moment is a little bit different until I get back into my head. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's, it's funny to have this all of a sudden, this pimple popping moment, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know. Some, some, I'm sure someone's written some sort of thesis on why human beings love to pop one another's pimples. But it's, um, <laughs> I know, right? It's a thing. <laughs> it is well, a that, very strange. Well, the, <laughs> I'd like to know how it relates to like, Hundreds of thousands of years ago, but well, I'm um, sorry that pimple popper thing on YouTube is much worse than pervert could ever be. 
<laughs> Wait, what pimple popper thing? Well, you you know, there's like Dr. Pimple Popper or whatever YouTube where oh, yeah, no, this. don't yeah, no, don't no, come bad. on. I have a certain amount of innocence. It's bad. Don't, it's bad. Don't mess it, with my innocence. It's, it's it's not enjoyable television, let me tell you. God, kids today. So, um <laughs> I want to ask you a big overview question. Okay. Do you, has this life been satisfying for you? I mean, do you ever, you know, I, I sometimes ask people this because it's something that I go through a lot, trying to figure out, you know, have I been the person I hope to be? Have I contributed in a mm. way that I'd hope to? And I'm always interested in hearing what people who I think are particularly soulful people, decent people, menschy people, as my people would say how they feel about the life that they've they've lived thus far. I'm surprised by it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm surprised that I've actually built and have such a beautiful and full life. I think I was, I, I, yeah, I think that I, I, I didn't have any expectations of being able to also financially support myself mm-hmm. because I worked so hard through both my undergrad and my grad and even afterwards and just, you know, push, putting it all together, like being a butch dyke doesn't really afford the kind of flirtatious (laughs) ability to maneuver Mm -hmm. through life, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and so to get like the things that I really desired, which was having my own family yeah. And being able to buy a house and being being able to like sustain a studio practice as well as a teaching practice. I would say that it's surprisingly much more charmed than I had anticipated my life to be. That's wonderful. What a fantastic place to find yourself. Um, so you feel settled and at peace to a certain extent. Yeah, I feel settled at, and at peace. And I would say that the biggest barrier in my life now is how do I actually slow my life down? Mm-hmm. Turning 60, you know, I know that I have two to three more years at UCLA and then I want to retire after that, that point. It'll be about 35 years of teaching. Wow. I know that um, I I want to just explore what I want to make as an artist. Mm-hmm. I want to, in a weird way, be a little less giving, which is an odd thing to say because I really enjoy that side of me. But, you know, being on three boards as a trustee, yeah, as well as being a full-time professor, as well as being a full-time exhibiting artist, Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what it'll be like not to have as many hats on my head, Mm -hmm. so to speak. More time to go um, fishing? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I still haven't caught that goddamn fish up in Three Rivers yet. I'm trying. (laughs) But more time to do things like I have this real big desire to, you talked about cold. I like cold too. Mm -hmm. Like I'm super into dead of winter kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And I'm obsessed with Norway's light Mm. in the winter, Mm -hmm. that blue, blue light. It's Mm -hmm. almost as if you're holding a blue filter over a lens. And I want to make blue, blue portraits in a small town in Norway up in the most northern area. And I want to make blue landscapes. 
And I want to have that month in that kind of coldness just to like, again, be with the elements and see what I can get with my cameras. And I also want to do like really hokey full moon photographs in our house in Three Rivers mm -hmm. where I'm shooting with an 810 camera again, which I haven't allowed myself to do in years and just do black and white long exposures of this landscape that I've totally grown to love after having the house there for 16 years now. And uh, just imagine just that kind of giving myself time. I don't give myself enough time in my mind right now. Mm -hmm. You know, it always feels like it's, okay, I get to do this between this time and this time, then I have to move on to yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, things get cut short, yeah. Yeah, I want a different kind of slowness in my life mm -hmm. that I hope that I can obtain, but also be okay with a slowness. I don't know if I'm going to be okay, right, slow yeah. down, to tell you the truth. By the way, that didn't sound like too much slowing down, but yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't, it's not like I'm going to go sit on my rocking chair on the front porch. So when you think about like that picture you just painted for me, do you think yeah. about those different photographs that you imagine making? Do you think about how they'll fit in with the work that's come before or do you not care? It, it doesn't matter. You're not preoccupied with, with that nonsense. I, I think you can answer that yeah, by I can. going through the fine book. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm preoccupied with yeah. being a singular identity as an artist, which I've said okay. so many times before. I'm not. I mean, I hope that I can constantly question and stretch my ability with the medium and photography mm -hmm. like making the modernist was a huge break for me and then going from Your the movie. modernist yep. to making rhetorical landscapes to yep. even making 2020 this body of work this year and then what i just did in rome like really surprised me i had no i i i feel like i've never had a successful experience photographing in a different country I really feel like that American photographer title is a real kind of, you know, stamp on me, so mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. And it is what I'm most comfortable with. I feel like I can talk about American identity in a really complicated, you know, and hopefully interesting way. Mm -hmm. But I did just go to Rome for six weeks at the American Academy and really feel like I left with something that I think will be a good body of work. Wow. Exciting. Yeah, and um, I haven't started editing it yet because I need time after a big trip to just let it kind of wash over me mm -hmm. before I go into editing mode. How long do you usually wait about? About three or four months, mm -hmm. usually. Good, that's great. I'm such a, but yeah, I think that's the way to go. But obviously yeah, everyone's different, but I do think that that's really helpful yeah before i even look at the contact sheets or anything it's like i get them done and the the folders are there and i might go and i might peek mm -hmm. <laughs> but i don't start editing like i'll peek at my experience yep. and then i'll be like nope not yet yep. you know it's just got to sit there and brew and you kind of have to get your head in a different position i feel from a experiencing and making position yes. to then yes. the editing position. Yes. And it, it takes time, I believe. I always joke around about artists who 
say, oh, Sasha, yeah, I'll be looking at work and we'll get to a particular image. And say, oh, Sasha, I love this image. I hope you love it too. It's yada, yada, yada. And when I made it, this and that, and this is how I felt and blah, blah, blah. And I just look at, at them and I'm like, well, you know, none of that's actually in the picture. Well, you yeah, know? that's the problem. Right, with this. right, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it's like you have to look again. People work differently, but for a lot of people, it's very helpful to get away from, put a little time in so that you can separate how you feel when you made the picture from the picture, <laughs> you know, because otherwise it's really difficult to have any sense of how it's going to be in the world separate from you. Yeah, and hopefully the photograph works outside of you. Right, always. absolutely. Yeah. You know, that's the thing is I can have all of these different experiences and know what I'm experiencing. But if I can't structurally do it within the body of work to connote that, then I'm not hitting the mark. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to, the work has to not have an overall universality to it, but it certainly has to be positioned in my mind. Mm -hmm. And I do try to do that all the way through all the various bodies of work is this kind of repositioning to get at other aspects of also just not uh, the aspect of what I'm making images of, but how it relates to the history of, of representation and photography. So I was trying to trap you earlier. I'm going to go back to this because, you know, you, oh, yeah. you were one of the contributors in my book and in, in photo work. And so for the question, do you associate your work with a particular genre of photography? You wrote, in the beginning of making photographs, I decided that I needed to define myself within a genre. I would often call myself a social documentary photographer. Ultimately, yeah. I realized that I'm interested in ideas around democracy and humanity and the ability for the camera to record these ideas in relation to history. And I just want to say that I really love that answer. And I love the way you've decided that your genre is humanity. And yeah, not, I have. <laughs> and, and, but that's so great. And I think that's the answer when people think, well, what's Kathy doing? You know, these these soft focus landscapes or how does this, you know, whatever it's like, well, you're, you're just, you know, as I've, I've said this a number of times now already today, as we've been talking, a clearly and extremely a person who feels things deeply and is really interested in being a caring person on the planet and adding goodness and, yeah, You know, that's the genre that you work within, right? I mean, it's yeah. sort of amazing. And I think that if it was at all unclear to me before the Fiden book, it's not unclear at all anymore. Because that... that that's nice. That sense of you is is there. And it's... I'm going to choke up because this, this is the kind of person I am. I've... I've found the experience of spending time with the book extremely moving. Um, oh, thank you. So uh, the kindness in it and the caring for other people was really good to take in. And of course, your pictures are just so beautiful. And so that incredible formal beauty and the attention to color palette when which I think is extremely important um, 
when working in color and the beautiful rich tones and the blacks and a lot of the work and which really moved me and sucked me in personally. And then the just formal lines and the black and white work. I mean, I, I don't want to in any way, you know, not talk up the incredible aesthetics of your work, but there is so much caring in the work and oh, it's really moving. So sorry, yeah, did I, I probably embarrassed no, you. No, 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 you didn't embarrass me at all. It's really, I'm really glad that you get that from the work. Um, I do think that this book does allow people to enter my practice in a different way. I like that it's not chronological. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a relief yes. from my own rigidity because I am rigid as an artist. I think you can see that as I'm building bodies of work, there's a certain rigidity to ideas of structure for me that I can't really seem to escape. But I like that you see the care because I do. I am overly concerned with the state of the world. And that is the last four years under the Trump administration, why I kind of stretched myself and made the modernist and rhetorical landscapes in 2020 is just needing to go back and think about the structure of bearing witness, mm -hmm. but also the invented structure of our relationship to being a hungry artist who's living in their studio and their work becomes burning down modernist houses in LA. Like that that narrative in its in, in its own way really reflects just how worried I am about people being able to even live a sustainable life. Mm -hmm. And if this planet is going to be sustainable for us. And uh, I, I feel a big need to talk about those things right now because I've just seen more hate than I could have imagined no, coming brutal. off the oh, yeah. Obama administration yeah. that I didn't think that was actually like I was in a little bit of a drink the Kool-Aid land and I was just like, whoa, yeah. America. No, you're not you're not alone. I mean, I've I have really been, you know, profoundly down for stretches of time with the sort of realization of I don't want to just sort of say how awful human beings are, but can be. But I, I definitely got the ratio wrong of good to bad. I mean, that's sort yeah, of the simplest I way too. I could say it. And yeah. I'm sort of doubling back now and really trying, because I feel like the only way out for me to get out of this mindset is to really, really try and understand the evolutionary psychology of it and how we were created the way in which a lot of the worst behavior that we've seen is something that we are hardwired for and that it's only well, through a certain conscious we, we are no we are we are I, I know i mean and that that's the thing and it's it's you know i think it takes a lot of reflection and not everyone comes from a place where they they know how to be really introspective and reflective, I've been given those tools to be able to sort of deconstruct my own behavior and reactions to things. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of Most people of don't them. have that, right? <laughs> oh, no, they don't. And also reality television hasn't helped. And the well, all that stuff is disgusting. The snarkiness no. is just, yeah. it hasn't helped. And I think that 
you know, I remember when I was watching my son one day watching the Kardashians. Oh, and, yeah, I don't. And he's also really into uh, RuPaul's show, which I actually, is, it, you know, him and my wife, uh, Julie, watch RuPaul all the time, Drag Race. Mm-hmm. And I love that they're into it. But they're like, Mama Kathy, I don't understand. Why aren't you watching Drag Race with us? And I said, listen, I grew up in the most beautiful drag community that you could imagine in San Francisco with the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And for me, this isn't what's being represented. Mm -hmm. Um, I said, they're a little bit too mean to each Mm -hmm. other. It's a little too hard for me. Yeah. I don't, I don't do, I I, I don't do meanness. I just don't do mean. Uh. <laughs> no, I'm I'm with you. I mean, I watched one season of Survivor and I was like, that was too much for me. And I, ne- you know, I, I've never, I don't watch any of those things. The only thing I watch is Top Chef or some great British baking show. I mean, right. you know, I, I want everyone, I want it to be like some sort of like, I call it frontal lobotomy television, but you know, it's just uh, easy and nice. And I, I'm with you. I, I, but I don't think you know, it's like Trump, it's just a symptom of who we are. And, you know, I always say to people that, you know, I don't know why we don't teach basic human psychology to children, like that should be right there with math and science. Well, we we did with our son, we sent him to this hippie preschool called Play Mountain Place, which is all based on conflict resolution. Mm hmm. So, but that's yeah. the way we want, that's the way we wanted to roll, but everybody should be learning conflict resolution. Everyone should understand the their own psyche. <laughs> Just yeah. start with that. Yeah. Just understand <laughs> your own psyche. And even everyone throwing, like, accusing each other of being this person or that person. It's like, we're, if you understand your own psyche, you understand the most basic thing. We're all biased. We all have biases. It's what being a human being is about. Um Oh, man. Okay. I'm like the queen of digression. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. It, it is, you know, it is like something, you know, it's going back to kindness is that I have a really hard time even thinking about making a snarky portrait. I mean, there's a lot of photographers out there who want this idea of an edge in their portrait, mm-hmm. but an edge in their portrait is also depicting people in kind of sometimes their worst situations. Yeah. And I don't believe in that in that edge and mm-hmm. what that does in terms of depicting it. So it's, yeah, it's something that I'm really aware of in terms of trying to create a better sense of, of humanity somehow. And I guess that's just my way of, of trying to approach portraiture, so to speak. Will you make more films do you think i mean how is the experience of making the modernist I mean, it's not really a traditional film but it's no i mean i made a traditional film with lisa Udelson called same difference which i really enjoyed uh framing the headshots of the kids talking about how gay marriage was taken away from their family with prop eight mm-hmm. and uh and it was like a talking portrait and i like that aspect of it a lot i didn't like the editing aspect and uh, and collaboration is good, but it's also a little difficult, mm-hmm. especially when you're just used to making your own work Absolutely, all these years. Yep. So film to me is a really, I mean, I have such respect for film and I, I really look at film a lot. Definitely a, a movie buff, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I just saw the most beautiful film the other day. It's such a rare 
film that I had forgotten about. It was a 1972 David Hockney film, The Big Splash. And it was so homoerotic, so beautiful to look at. And it was young David Hockney. And it just kind of blew my mind because it was based on him, but also there was a fictional component uh-huh. to it. So it was really odd, but it was on Criterion. And I love Criterion. <laughs> Criterion's amazing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Criterion is like a national treasure. It's incredible. I'm like, thank God for Criterion. I know. You know. And Julie's like, well, you don't watch Criterion very much. Why do we pay for that? I'm like, because we have to. Yeah, yeah, no, you have to. It's, it's, you have to have it. Jason Fulford, I think it was Jason who mentioned Criterion, but it comes up so often in conversations I have with friends. And, you know, I was just what I think it was on Criterion. I was just watching, rewatching some John Cassavetes. Have you, when was the last oh, time you saw yeah. Faces? Oh, gosh, I don't even remember. Okay, will you Probably the 80s. Promise like me, will you go watch Faces? Nine. Watch Faces. I'm going to actually, I'm going to check okay. up on you. you. Even if you don't, you know, just, just, just hang in long enough to see some framing of Jenna Rowland's face. It, it, it's incredible. I think you'll find it really inspiring. The photography yeah. is amazing. But, yeah, no, just I love finding those nuggets especially. i mean if i was a mil- filmmaker i would want to be a filmmaker like chloe Z- Zhao. oh god yeah, like she's that's great. yeah that's who i would want to be yeah. as a filmmaker yeah, 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 you yeah. know or even a little bit of a flavor of gus van zandt mm-hmm. i would Kid want i would want yeah. <laughs> i i would want really quiet films that did a lot with landscape but also really showed you know just the human condition so to speak kelly reichardt yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah uh, First Cow was was one of my favorite films of 2020. Just want to shout out for First Cow. Yeah, didn't get as First much cow. love as it should have. God damn it! Such <laughs> a great, great, great movie. Well, anyway, listen, I could talk to you forever, but um, we'll wrap up and maybe you'll come on okay. again and we'll do a part two. And I'm sort of already thinking, how can I finagle my way to be on that uh, Norway trip with you. But anyway. Oh, right. Um, exactly. For the cold, cold yeah. uh, blueness yeah. of it all. Oh, my God. It's going to be amazing. Well, listen, just huge congratulations on the Fiden book. Everyone go out and get it. It's so, it's just such a beautiful object. And uh, the printing is fantastic. Uh, guys yeah, did a great no, job. They, they, they did everything just perfectly. Like, yep. I couldn't ask for a better handling of the work on Fiden's behalf. Yeah, what it's a blessing. Really, yeah. really amazing. Yeah. Well, big congratulations. Well, thank you and, for having um, me on the podcast. Oh. And of course, I'll come back. We'll talk about, we'll just like dig deep in another time about other people and photographs yes. that we like. I mean, you've made so much amazing work. Of course, we could do an episode just per body of work <laughs> easily. But um, with the podcast, I try not to get too into specific images because a podcast is audio. A pod, yes, it's a podcast. and keep exactly. it a bit more general. But anyway, okay, Kathy, until next time, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Have a good day. You too. Okay, bye. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and our theme music is by Jay Walter Hawks. You can hear Photo Work on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts.